Hey guys, let's uh, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Job, chapter 22. We started into what we call round three. It's round three because you'll recall that uh, this section of Job that we're in, it starts in chapter 33, it goes through chapter 30. I'm sorry, it starts in chapter 3, goes through chapter 30, uh, is a dialogue section. You've got a guy named Eliphaz, that's friend number one. You've got a guy named Bildad, that's friend number two. You've got a guy named Zophar. Sounds like out of the Lord of the Rings or something like that, right? Those are the three main friends. We'll get introduced to Elihu, the fourth friend, here in a little bit. But uh, what happens is each of these guys is going to talk. They take turns. Eliphaz goes first. And then Job is going to respond to Eliphaz. And then Bildad's going to speak. And Job will again respond to him. Zophar will speak. And then Job will respond to Zophar. And then the cycle will repeat itself for a total of three times. And uh, we're in the section, uh, the chapter I just turned you to, verse, or chapter 22, is the beginning of uh, the third round, the, the, the third cycle here in this. Is this sounding familiar? Okay, I don't want you to get lost here in the dialogue, get lost in the woods. You know, it's funny. I've been reading lots of commentaries and uh, just people that talk about Job. And the more I get into Job, the, the more I'm convinced that it's, um, it, it's like uh, uh, what we would call a classic in literature. It's a book that everybody owns and nobody has read, right? That's a classic. And um, Job is one of those books, I think, that we're familiar with. But for whatever reason, we've not taken the time to study it. I know I haven't. And, you know, you, you think you kind of know, you kind of throw little things out there. Well, I don't want to be like Job's friends, and I want to endure like Job. And, you know, we know a little bit of the story. But I've just been really, really, really blown away at, at what this book really reveals. Um, the honesty of it. Job, Job is not... Um, the Old Testament Superman with his red cape and his blue suit, and he comes out and look, I'm going in the phone booth, and and you know here I am. I mean that that's not Job at all. He he's not Mr. Super Believer of the Old Testament. Uh, he was a very very righteous man indeed, um, but he was a very real man. Uh, he was a man who struggled. Uh, he was a man who endured great suffering and hardship. And I don't know about you, but I identify with Job not in his godliness, but in his struggles. Um, and the things he thought, the things he said, uh, the things he said to his friends in the midst of frustration. And um, so I've, I've just enjoyed getting to know Job. And uh, the, the, the negative side of that is that sometimes the commentaries don't help you a whole lot because um, I'll, I'll read you a quote here from Mr. Schofield himself. And uh, I just think he totally misses the point of the book, which is... Is it bad to go against Schofield? Can we say that as dispensationalists? Is that okay? Okay. So let's jump back in here. And uh, we talked just about two sort of new themes that emerge in chapter in this round three here. Um, we're not, I'm not interested in taking you through the whole 
uh, of the chapter here and, and just repeating things that we've already looked at some, uh, at, we've looked at in depth. But we do want to look at some new things. We saw last time that uh, the friends do something that they've never done before, and that is in chapter 22, verses um, 6 and following, they're going to start to speculate on what Job's sin is, okay, going from bad to worse. They know they ha- he has some secret sin in his life. For whatever reason, he doesn't want to admit the sin. And uh, so in, in a last bit of desperation, they start guessing. And, um, you know, it's interesting. Um, it, maybe if you can think back to the last sort of conflict you had with somebody, maybe it was your spouse or one of your kids or a coworker. Um, uh, we, I mentioned last week the proverb that, that says, uh, you know, abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. And, and part, of, part of the counsel there is that the more we get into a conflict, the more we say things and do things that when we're thinking straight, we would not say or do, right? And it's interesting to see the progression of this book as, as the friends are not convincing Job, and as Job is not convincing the friends, and they're both digging their heels in more and more and more. And here we see, no doubt in an effort of desperation... LFS says, okay, I've got some things I've seen in your life, Job. I bet it's one of these things is the reason God is bringing all this suffering in your life. And he uh, goes into that and puts his foot in his mouth, in my opinion. Number two, we see Job accusing God of being unjust to others. Um, This is something that we haven't seen before as well. Uh, Look at chapter 24. Let's just uh, briefly review this point. He wrongs, uh, chapter 24, verse 21, talking to God, Job is talking to God, he wrongs the barren woman and does no good for the widow. He drags off the valiant by his power. He rises, but no one has assurance of life. He provides them, meaning the wicked, with security, and they are supported, and his eyes are on their way. So Job is saying, I'm looking at the the woman that's struggling to have kids. I'm looking at the widow, and I don't see God helping them. But then I look at the wicked, and I say, wow, God's taking really good care of the wicked. He's causing them to prosper. He's supporting their ways. And and Job's, uh, Job's point is that God is not fair to other people either. He's not fair to me and my suffering, and he's not being fair to the widows and uh, the barren women, and, and, and in fact, he's giving the wicked what they don't deserve. There's so much irony in this book, too. I mean, I, I, we haven't, maybe we need to do a whole lesson on the irony of Job, because all of this is going somewhere. All of this is building toward God stepping on the stage. And even when, even when the, the friends get on here and they start speaking for God, and you see little allusions to uh, what is coming here. Let's look at another thing that's new in round three. Um, and, and if we don't get past this point today, I will, be, I will be fine with that. I have no desire to burn through this part. But um, we see in the midst of all of this bad counsel some really good theology from one of the friends. And to be fair to all these guys, none of these guys is giving totally heretical counsel. It's mixed. Sometimes they say good things. Sometimes they say bad things. But I want to draw your attention to... Um, uh, Mr. Eliphaz here, and um, let's just pick it up together as he, um, you know, he's just accused Job of sinning and has drawn out some principles there. 
But um, listen to when he turns the corner here. Listen to his counsel to Job about what he should do, okay? Verse 21 of chapter 22. Yield now and be at peace with him. Thereby good will come to you. Now we've got, we got to pull the car over right, right away because it goes right back to that retributive theology. Job, if you do right, then your life is going to get better. Okay, and we want to, let's just uh, edit that part out. But listen to the rest of what he says, okay? Because the rest of what he says is really, really good. Verse 22, please receive instruction from his mouth and establish his words in your heart. And we see Eliphaz turning Job's heart back to God saying, you don't need to be telling God what to do. You need to be listening to him. You need to be bringing your heart, establishing it in his words. Verse 23, if you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. If you remove unrighteousness far from your tent and place your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks. Now listen to this verse. Then the Almighty will become your gold. and choice silver to you. For then you will delight in Him, in the Almighty. Now, look up. Isn't that good? What did He just do? What did He do? What's that? Okay, He's turning His attention Godward, and we need to throw up, we need to kind of edit out, throw aside the retributive side of this, which is, you know, if you do right, God's going to make your life perfect. Throw that aside. But listen to the heart of what He's saying. Put that aside, but listen to the heart of what He's saying. What's He saying? He's saying, Job, God must be your treasure. He needs to be more to you than your stuff, than your gold. He needs to be your delight. He needs to be your joy. Verse 27, you will pray to him and he will hear you and you will pay your vows. You will also decree a thing and it will be established for you and light will shine on your ways when you are cast down. You will speak with confidence. So in the midst of really, really bad counsel, Eliphaz hits it out of the park. He nails it. He says, you don't need to be telling God what to do. You need to be listening to Him. In fact, furthermore, you need to be repenting and making God the gold of your life. Making Him the delight, as it says there, of your life. Uh, uh, 25 and 26, those of you who are interested, um, if you've ever done a study of the names of God, you remember that? One, one of the most unique titles for God in Scripture, El Shaddai. Have you heard that before? You know, back in the 70s, they had that song, you know, you, you sang around the campfire. Um, El Shaddai, the, the mighty one, the awesome one, the exalted one. And he's saying, that is the one who needs to be your gold and your delight. Finish the chapter with me. Uh, back to chapter 20, or verse 29. And the humble person he will save. He will deliver one who is not innocent. And he will be delivered through the cleanness of of your hands. Is that good counsel? To make God your treasure, to make Him your refuge, to make Him your delight and your joy. One of the things, one of the things that happens in suffering 
is our vision gets skewed. And we saw this way back at the beginning of the book. One of God's designs in suffering is to bring clarity to your eyes. It's to help you to see things the way they really are, not the way we think they are most of the time when life is good. And you know that that to be true, don't you? Uh, Maybe somebody gets cancer and all of a sudden you realize that that's a relationship that you've neglected, right? Uh, maybe, Maybe you lose a job and you realize, you know what, I haven't been depending on God for everything. I've been depending on me. See, that's a good thing. That's God adjusting our eyes so that we see. And that, that's what Eliphaz is doing here. He's saying, we need to get back to the place where God is the one whom we're focused on. God is the one who is our treasure and our joy and our delight. Yes, sir. And and what? Yes, very much so. Yeah, you, you have to kind of, you kind of have to knock off, like I said, kind of edit a little bit because that retributive theology just flows through the whole discussion. Um, and yeah, that's exactly what he's doing there. Is he's kind of going back to his original point. Um, but but the heart of what he says is good. Is really really good. Okay. So in the midst of, of the challenges of the book, in the midst of the bad counsel, we see glimmers of really, really helpful truth about God. We're going to spend, um, I was kind of outlining um, messages for the fall here, and uh, we're going to spend one whole section called Theology Proper According to Job. And we're going to go through the whole book and just talk about what it teaches us about the character of God. We'll have to be a little bit careful because obviously they're off in a lot of places but focusing on the good stuff. And I think it'll be one of our most fun times together. There's another thing I want you to see in round three here. We'll call it this treatise on wisdom. Flip over to chapter 28. Another really, really helpful section of the book here. Now, remember what happens in the third round. Eliphaz starts, Job responds. Bildad has a very, very short discussion. Um, And and then he's done. And and it's like as the friends are getting shorter, Job's getting longer-winded. And so he goes. And and now when when we get to Zophar in this third section, anybody remember what happens to Zophar in the third round? Yeah, he punts, right? He, 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 just, he doesn't even speak up. Yeah, I'm done. I, I've said my piece. I've, you know, there's nothing more I can add to this. So, so like any good preacher, what does Job keep doing? He just keeps right on going, doesn't he? Right? He just keeps, keeps on going there. And then he goes, actually, most commentaries will take the section after Bildad responds, and, and they call it Job's extended defense. They'll put those. It's basically from chapter... Um, See, where does Bildad come in here? 25? Okay, so basically from 26 all the way through chapter 30, most commentators will put that in its own section and call it uh, Job's extended defense of himself. But, but look, at this, um, look at this section here on wisdom. It, it kind of jumps out in the middle of it, and uh, it, it's worth stopping and looking at together. Chapter 28, verse 1, Surely... There is a mine for silver, 
and a place where they refine gold. Iron is taken from the dust, and from rock, copper is smelted. Man puts an end to darkness, and to the farthest limits he searches out. The rock and gloom and deep shadow, he sinks a shaft far from habitation, forgotten by the foot. They hang and swing to, uh, to and fro, far from men. The earth, from it comes food, and underneath it is turned up as fire. Its rocks are the source of sapphire, and its dust contains gold. The path no bird of prey knows, nor has the falcon's eye caught sight of it. The proud beasts have not trodden it, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. What he's doing is, here is he's talking about uh, man's ability to find all these precious things buried in the earth. That's what he's talking about. You find iron, you find gold, you find silver, you find copper. And he's saying, you know, man has discovered this. There's, there's no animal that gets this. There's no, no creature that understands this other than God. Uh, verse 9, he puts his hand on the flint, he overturns the mountains at the base, he hews out channels through the rocks, and his eyes see anything precious. He dams up the streams from flowing, and what is hidden he brings out to the light. So, so man's done all these wonderful things. He's found all these wonderful jewels and precious metals and stones. But verse 12, where can wisdom be found? You can't go dig up wisdom. You, you can't get some heavy equipment. You know, you can't get Thomas Cole out there with his backhoe and go looking for wisdom. Can't do it. Verse 12, where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. The sea says, it is not with me. Pure gold. Listen to this. Gold is at an all-time high right now, right? Listen to this. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, its precious onyx or sapphire. Gold or glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for the articles of fine gold. Coral and crystal are not to be mentioned, and the acquisition of wisdom is above that of pearls. Makes you think of Proverbs 31, doesn't it? Actually, this whole thing better be making you think of Proverbs. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued, valued in pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? Remember what I told you about the questions in Job? Job is a book of really good questions. And the questions that Job asks and the questions that the friends ask are very insightful and helpful to we, the readers. Isn't that a great question? Where does wisdom come from? You can't dig it up. You can't buy it. You can't exchange gold for it. And where is the place of understanding? Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all the living and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, With our ears we have heard a report of it. Here it is, verse 23. But God understands its way. And he knows its place. Now, now stop right there. Where have most of the characters in the book turned to for their wisdom so far? Their own experience. Their own experience. Remember that? Remember Eliphaz gets up? Job, I have seen over the years. I got more gray hair than you do, Job, he says. I have seen that people suffer because they do what? 
they sin. And even Job, we saw this last time, in refuting the friend's theology that the innocent never suffer and the wicked always suffer. Remember that? Remember Job draws from personal experience and says, no, that's not right. Now, there's nothing wrong with experience because experience plays a very, very important part um, since that's sort of where we live, right? You know, we don't live in a theology book. We live in the application of our theology. We live in our, the application of Scripture. And, and experience is wonderful for, for seeing theology fleshed out, for even seeing things that we say, well, that doesn't seem right. And so that drives us back to the Word of God to study harder and to understand it, make sure we got it right. So we're not saying experience is wrong. But experience can never, ever, ever be the ultimate source of where you go to find truth. And that's what Job is saying here. It's not something you dig up. It's not something you buy. Only God, verse 23, understand its way, understands its way. And he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth. He sees everything under the heavens. Stop right there. This is very important. The reason human wisdom will always be inadequate, as experienced as we might be, as gifted as some people might be, is only God sees everything. Do you see that connection he makes there? Only God, you ready? Knows all the facts. Only God sees Everything. Only God not only knows all the facts, only He rightly interprets all the facts. You know, can we just have an exercise in our own insignificance here for a minute? I don't, I don't want to hurt your self-esteem or anything, heaven forbid, this morning. Yes, I do? Are you interpreting my motives? No. Um, we live in a span of time about that big don't we? The Bible says, according to God, we are like dust. We're like grass that's here today and gone tomorrow. We live in a very, very short little time and space. Not only do we only live for a few years in the scheme of the universe, we live in one little... We live in Granbury. Right? This little... Country town, right? In the 21st century, we have the internet, we can learn lots of stuff. But we live in one little location, in one little town, in one little state, in one country, in the whole world, in a world, in a galaxy of how many billions and billions of planets and stars? In a galaxy, in a universe where there are billions of galaxies? We won't get into the math and science, but I'm tempted. But it's huge. The universe is bigger than we could ever imagine. And we're going we're gonna to say, I think I got this one figured out. I think I know the answer to your problem. It's crazy. But you know what? We do it every day, don't we? We think we know better. We think we understand. We think we have the right interpretation. And Job says, what does it say? Look back at the text, verse 24. He looks to the ends of the earth. He sees the end from the beginning. He sees everything under the heavens. He imparted weight 
to the wind and meted out the waters by the measure. He set a limit for the rain. There it is. And a course for the, for the thunderbolt. You think about that? You see some thunder Friday? We were up in Fort Worth. And it's like, was that lightning? And, and you ever seen a lightning bolt? As those water molecules explode. I mean, you understand how that works? Just this little path down. Job is saying, God sets that course. Whenever you see that, he, he is, he, think, picture a drafting board. And he is, as it were, drawn out the whole thing, the path. He, he's upholding. Do you see how little we are, how insignificant we are, how powerless we really are? Verse 27, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and also searched it out. Now listen, listen. This is an underlining, highlighting, starring, circling verse. Verse 28, and to the man he said, okay, in light of who God is, what does he say to us? Behold, ready? The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Wow, right? Talk, talk to me about the fear of the Lord. What's that all about? The fear of the Lord. Okay, all right. What does it mean to fear God? Respect, okay. To put him in a place that he's worthy of. Very good. Respect. What else? It's, it's a hard, I, I think it's a hard concept to get our brains around. We've got we to gotta try here because this, this is the bottom line according to Job. Fear of the Lord. What is it? You're at his mercy. What's that, Doc? Totally in awe. Yeah, that, that word fear, it's interesting. It's got two sort of extreme meanings. It can mean dread and terror, and it can mean just standing in, to, in total awe and joy of something. Right? And in the middle, it, it can kind of mean reverence or respect. Yeah, David. Take him seriously that he's real. Very good. If you study Proverbs... Um, and doesn't this sound like Proverbs? Um, you wonder if uh, maybe Solomon had access to the book of Job. He, he had everything else. Certainly he had a copy of Job. Um, it's, it's an acknowledgement of and a submission to your Creator and God. It's saying, I don't know anything. I don't have anything. I can't be anything. I can't do anything without this God. And what does Solomon say? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 9, verse 10. Um, we can't know anything. We can't be wise in any way unless we somehow know this God and are connected to this God, and submit to this God. That's why the fool says in his heart, what? There's no God. That's foolishness, saying, I don't need Him. I don't want Him. I don't acknowledge Him. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. That, that's, with a little bit of word change, is almost exactly what Solomon is going to say. 
in Proverbs. Okay? And I just think that it's so interesting, you know, I don't know if Joe put that there, if an editor put that there, or, you know, there's authorship issues here, but what, what do you think... What do you think this chapter plays in the scheme of the book? Why the wisdom chapter chapter here? Think with me. I know it's morning. I know we're tired. Think. This is so important that you see this. Why is it here? Cheryl says he put it here because it's a man thing. All right. No, no, I see, I see, yeah. Well, I like what you're saying, because that, that's true. How many times have they gone around the mulberry bush here? Three times. Have they resolved anything? No. Has, have the three friends been able to convince Job and answer his questions? No. Has anyone been able to answer Job's questions? Have the free, three friends been able to do that? No. What has been exhausted? Listen, what has been exhausted at this point in the book? Very good. Man's wisdom. Do you see that? It's here for a reason. And I don't know who put it here, but it's here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Man's wisdom has been exhausted. And this is a glimmer. This is, this is a little pointer to... Hey, maybe you're looking in the wrong place. I was on the phone a lot this week with a whole bunch of different people, lots of different situations, and um, man's wisdom is totally inadequate for life, for godliness, for solving problems, for helping people. But what does what does Second Peter one say? Christ's divine power, as revealed in the precious promises in in the Word, Christ's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That, that that's a pretty good deal, isn't it? I think I think that's why it's here. Okay. Number three. Flip over to chapter 29. You're in 28. Just look ahead over to the other page. This is, I'm going to say, one of the most, most uh, saddest, you say saddest, most sad chapters of Scripture. I'm just going to read this. And, and I, want you, I want you to think about Job saying this. Okay, listen to this. Again, Job took up his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in months gone by, as in the days when God watched over me. You ever, you ever done that? You ever looked back on happier times in your life in the midst of a trial? Verse 3, When his lamp, God's lamp, shone over my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. I was in the prime of my days when the friendship of God was over my tent. When the Almighty was yet with me, and my children were around me, when my steps were bathed in butter, that's a good thing, and, and the rock poured out for me streams of oil, 
when I went out to the gate of the city, when I took my seat in the square, the young men saw me and they hid themselves. And the old men arose and stood when Job walked by. The princes stopped talking. They put their hands on their mouths. The voice of the nobles was hushed and their tongue stuck to their palate. And when the ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it gave witness of me. I don't think we have a category for a man of the stature of Job. I mean, can you think of anyone who was so upright and godly that even though you may have been a prince or a king, when he walked in the room, everybody stopped talking? Yeah, maybe, maybe Billy Graham. Maybe that's the closest we can come. And, and notice, notice his perspective on this. Back in the day when friendship of God was over my tent and my, the Almighty was with me. The implication is what? What's that? That he's not there anymore, right? Yeah, God's not there anymore. God's not his friend anymore. God's not with him. Um, some of you have lost children. And I'm sure there are days when you think back and you think of the day when your children were around you. Like Job. Verse 12. Listen, listen to some of the things that Job was known for. He delivered the poor, verse 12, who cried for help, and the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me, and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I investigated the case which I did not know. He had some sort of uh, legislative role where people would come to him, almost like when, when uh, people would go to Moses or go to Solomon to, to try hard cases. That was Job. Verse 17, I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. He saw that justice occurred. Verse 18, Then I thought, I shall die in my nest. I shall multiply my days as the sand. He says, My life's always going to be like this and I'll just die enjoying all these things. My root is spread out to the waters. The dew lies all night on my branch. My glory is ever new with me and my bow is renewed in my hand. To me, they listened and waited, talking about the elders, talking about the people, and kept silent for my counsel. Everybody went to Job. In, in, in his day, in his culture, he was the wisest, most upright man there was. And after my words, verse 22, and after my words, they did not speak again. Because he had what? The final word. They waited for me as they waited for rain. We can identify with that. And opened their mouth as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they did not believe. And the light of my face they did not cast down. I chose a way for them and sat as chief and dwelt as a king amongst the troops, as one who comforted the mourners. That chapter, more than any other chapter in Scripture, tells us what Job's life was like before this. He was an upright, godly 
man who everybody went to for counsel. Everybody respected him. But now what's happened? What's happened? Look at verse chapter 30, verse 1. But now those younger than I mock me. What is one of the most disrespectful things a young person can do? They mock an older person. And you see the uprightness of this man, the respect that everybody had of this man. And now he's gone through this trial. They don't recognize him anymore. He's out on the ash heap. He's not even welcome in the city anymore because of this disease. And, and clearly, the theology of the friends was not isolated to the friends. This is what everybody thought. Ah, Job must be a... What? A sinner? Even more than that. He must be a fake. Because obviously, there's something in his life that God doesn't like. And this upright, godly man that everybody respected, as this trial has come, as the suffering has come, people are saying, oh, okay, this isn't the guy we thought we knew. Whose fathers I disdained to put with the dogs of my flock. Indeed, what good was the strength of their hands to me? Vigor had perished from them. From want and famine they are gaunt, who gnaw the dry ground by night and waste and desolation. What he's saying is the kids that are mocking him, their parents are, are the lousy parents. You know, the worst of the worst kind of thing. And he goes on to talk about that. Verse 8, he calls them fools. Even those without a name, they were scourged from the land. Verse 9, and now I have become their taunt. I have become a byword to them. Makes you think of Jeremiah, right? Remember Jeremiah in Lamentations 3, when Jeremiah is lamenting? And he would walk down the street, and what would happen when he walked down the street of Jerusalem? Yeah. He had, he had a whole songbook of mocking songs against them that the kids would sing. Now they've become their taunt, a byword. Verse 10, they abhor me and they stand aloof from me. They do not refrain from spitting at my face. Really? Why? Why have the people had such a change in attitude toward Job? Look at verse 11. Because he, God, has loosed his bowstring and afflicted me. Okay, I want you to see this. Their change in attitude came because of all this affliction that they interpreted as God punishing him because he wasn't really a righteous man. Do you see that? Um, th this, this chapter is full of Sorrow. Um, verse 15, terrors are turned against me. They pursue my honor as the wind, and my prosperity has passed away like a cloud. Verse 16, and now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have seized me. At night it pierces my bones within me, and my gnawing pains take no rest. Verse 20, but I cry out to you, to God, for help, but you don't help me. You don't answer me. I stand up, but you turn your attention against me. 
you, verse 21, have become cruel to me. As Job reflects on the greatness of his past, what he enjoyed beforehand, all the blessings he had, all the respect of the people, this trial has come into the place, the people have turned against him, the friends seemingly have turned against him, and worst of all, God has turned against him. And we see Job spiraling once again to where he looks up to heaven and he says, Why don't you answer me? Are you being cruel to me? With the might of your hand, you've persecuted me. You lift me up to the wind and cause me to ride. You dissolve me in a storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house of meeting for all the living. Yet does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand or in a disaster therefore cry out for help? He's saying, Lord, I'm crying for help. Why don't you help me? Verse 25, have I not wept for the one whose life is hard? Was my soul not grieved for the needy? Verse 26, when I expected good, evil came. And when I waited for light, then darkness came. You ever felt like that? Just when you were expecting good, evil came. When he expected God to deliver him, waiting for his light to come, he gave darkness. Job concludes, I'm seething within. I cannot relax. Days of affliction confront me. He has that that disquieted heart again. He can't relax. He can't sleep. I go about mourning without comfort. I stand up in the assembly and I cry out for help. I have become a brother to jackals and a companion of ostriches. My skin turns black on me and my bones burn with fever. We get a little insight on his affliction there. Therefore my harp, that's his past, right? is turned to mourning and my flute to the sound of those who weep. I don't know about you, but I I read that chapter and I really felt for my older brother in the faith, Job. And no doubt, as you have loved people, as you have been involved in family and friends, you know people that are just sorrowful because life isn't the way it used to be. I think the biggest problem of this section, the biggest challenge of this section um, is where he ends up. He ends up right back in the place where he was earlier in the book in chapter 3 and following God has become, look at verse 21 again, God has become cruel to him. He is, we don't live out of the facts, we live out of how we interpret them, right? How is he interpreting God's silence? God doesn't care. He's out to get me. He's being cruel. I'm some some cosmic joke to him. And he's not in a good place. God is setting the stage for something that we'll see, a glimmer of hope that we'll talk about from a young man. We'll talk about that next time. Let's pray.